Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, I'm recording this intro in the immediate aftermath of now two mass shootings. The one in El Paso, and it appears there was one in Dayton a few hours ago. Needless to say, social media is now a cesspool. I guess there are a few things... I could say about this. I actually, I wrote a piece on my blog when I used to blog rather than podcast about six years ago in response to some jihadist violence. And um, it really is the clearest articulation of what I have to say at moments like this. The conversation about atrocities of this kind, mass shootings, is generally so confused And it's so frustrating to see people talking past one another for political or otherwise emotional reasons that, um, I don't know, I think I'll I'll read the first part of this blog post just to um, put my argument in view in the clearest form and then maybe say a few things relevant to the current moment. This comes from a post titled, No Ordinary Violence, which was published October 11th, 2013. A young man enters a public place, a school, a shopping mall, an airport, carrying a small arsenal. He begins killing people at random. He has no demands, and no one is spared. Eventually, the police arrive, and after an excruciating delay as they marshal their forces, the young man is brought down, or arrested. This has happened many times, and it will happen again. After each of these crimes, we lose our innocence, but then innocence magically returns. In the aftermath of horror, we seem to learn nothing of value. Indeed, many of us remain committed to denying the one thing of value that is there to be learned. After the Boston Marathon bombing, a journalist asked me, Why is it always angry young men who do these terrible things? She then sought to connect the behavior of the Sarnayev brothers, with that of Jared Loeffner, James Holmes, and Adam Lanza. Like many people, she believed that similar actions must have similar causes. But there are many sources of human evil, and if we want to protect ourselves and our societies, we must understand this. To that end, we should differentiate at least four types of violent actor. And now this is a sidebar. There may be one new subtype here that I'll I'll add. But here's the first. One. Those who are suffering from some form of mental illness that causes them to think and act irrationally. Given access to guns or explosives, these people may harm others for reasons that wouldn't make a bit of sense even if they could be articulated. We may never hear Jared Loeffner and James Holmes give accounts of their crimes, and we do not know what drove Adam Lanza to shoot his mother in the face and then slaughter dozens of children. But these mass murderers appear to be perfect examples of this first type. Aaron Alexis, the Navy Yard shooter, is yet another. What provoked him? He repeatedly complained that he was being bombarded with, quote, ultra-low-frequency electromagnetic waves. Apparently, he thought that killing people at random would offer some relief. It seems there's little to understand about the experiences of these men, or about their beliefs, except as symptoms of underlying mental illness. Two, this is the second type, prototypically evil psychopaths. These people are not delusional. They are malignantly selfish, ruthless, and prone to violence. 
Our maximum security prisons are full of such men. Given half a chance and half a reason, psychopaths will harm others, because that is what psychopaths do. It is worth observing that these first two types trouble us for reasons that have nothing to do with culture, ideology, or any other social variable. Of course, it matters if a psychotic or psychopath happens to be the head of a nation or otherwise has power and influence. That is what is so abhorrent about North Korea. The child king is mad or simply evil, and he's building a nuclear arsenal while millions starve. But even here, there is very little to be learned about what we, the billions of relatively normal human beings struggling to maintain open societies, are doing wrong. We didn't create Jared Loeffner, apart from making it too easy for him to get a gun. And we didn't create Kim Jong-il, apart from making it too easy for him to get nuclear bombs. Again, this was written six years ago. Given access to powerful weapons, such people will pose a threat no matter how rational, tolerant, or circumspect we become. And I guess I would add another descriptor here. There are people, it seems, who fall into one of these two categories, who are living in an online culture of trolling now where killing people and writing semi-bogus or entirely bogus manifestos merely designed to confuse the media is becoming a new phenomenon, right? These are people who are not moved by a sincere ideology. They're just, quote, shitposting. The behavior of trolling on websites like 4chan and 8chan has been exported to the real world in the form of mass murder designed as a troll. And uh, to some degree, I believe the Christchurch shooting in the mosque had this form, right? Still not entirely clear what happened there. So this is a kind of derangement that social media has introduced into our lives, where some people are willing to commit murder and even mass murder simply to enjoy the spectacle it creates online. Again, they're either crazy or evil or both. But in certain cases, the reasons for their behavior are not as they appear, right? And the media seems to get very confused about this. Okay, the third type here. Normal men and women who harm others while believing that they're doing the right thing or while neglecting to notice the consequences of their actions. These people are not insane, and they're not necessarily bad. They're just part of a system in which the negative consequences of ordinary selfishness and fear can become horribly magnified. Think of a soldier fighting in a war that may be ill-conceived or even unjust, but who has no rational alternative but to defend himself and his friends. Think of a boy growing up in the inner city who joins a gang for protection only to perpetuate the very cycle of violence that makes gang membership a necessity. Or think of a CEO whose short-term interests motivate him to put innocent lives, the environment, or the economy itself in peril. Most of these people aren't monsters. However, they can easily create suffering for others that only a monster would bring about by design. This is the true banality of evil, whatever Hannah Arendt actually meant by that phrase. But it is worth remembering that not all evil is banal. 4. Normal men and women who are motivated by ideology to waste their lives and the lives of others in extraordinary ways. Some of these belief systems are merely political or otherwise secular, in that their aim is to bring about specific changes in this world. But the worst of these doctrines are religious, 
whether or not they are attached to a mainstream religion, in that they are informed by ideas about otherworldly rewards and punishments, prophecies, magic, and so forth, which are especially conducive to fanaticism and self-sacrifice. Of course, a person can inhabit more than one of the above categories at once, and thus have his antisocial behavior overdetermined. There must be someone, somewhere, who is simultaneously psychotic and psychopathic, part of a corrupt system, and devoted to a dangerous, transcendent cause. But many examples of each of these types exist in their pure forms. For instance, in recent weeks, a spate of especially appalling jihadist attacks occurred, one in a shopping mall in Nairobi, where non-Muslims appear to have been systematically tortured before being murdered, one on a church in Peshawar, and one on a school playground in Baghdad, targeting children. Whenever I point out the role that religious ideology plays in atrocities of this kind, specifically the Islamic doctrines related to jihad, martyrdom, apostasy, and so forth, I am met with some version of the following. Quote, Bad people will always do these things. Religion is nothing more than a pretext. This is an increasingly dangerous misconception to have about human violence. Here is my pick for the most terrifying and depressing phenomenon on earth. A smart, capable, compassionate, and honorable person grows infected with ludicrous ideas about a holy book and a waiting paradise, and then becomes capable of murdering innocent people, even children, while in a state of religious ecstasy. Needless to say, this problem is rendered all the more terrifying and depressing because so many of us deny that it even exists. Okay, well, I think I'll stop there. Again, I wrote this six years ago in the aftermath of some jihadist attacks, and now I'm reading it to you in the aftermath of some mass shootings in the United States, which attest at least to the problem of gun violence here, as well as to our failure to make it difficult for bad people, crazy people, dangerous people to get access to guns. And it might in fact attest to a rise of white supremacist violence. At the time I'm recording this, it's not yet clear what's what here. But whatever's true of El Paso and Dayton, two things are absolutely clear. One is that, again, we need some rational gun control in the U.S. And I've written about guns. My views on guns and gun control are hard enough to parse that they resist easy summary. You can listen to the podcast or read the associated essay titled The Riddle of the Gun. I can sound very pro-gun for part of that, but the punchline you should not lose sight of is that the regulations I recommend on guns in the U.S. are more stringent than anyone on the left is calling for. So don't lose sight of that if you freak out over the other parts of that essay that sound like they were written by the NRA, an organization which I hope will one day be destroyed. The short form of this point is that we license people to drive cars, we license them even more stringently to fly airplanes. And I think getting a license to own a firearm should be like getting a pilot's license. It shouldn't be easy. And if you're mentally ill or prone to suicidal depression, it should be very difficult to get your hands on a gun. But with 300 million guns already in existence in the U.S., this is a, a hard thing to bring about, not to mention the political religion around gun ownership enshrined in the Second Amendment. Anyway, we need a conversation and research 
and political change around the epidemiology of gun violence. It's insane that we suffer this in the U.S. to this degree. It's also true that we should keep some perspective. In the hours where I think it's now 38 people have died in two mass shootings in the U.S., more people have died from ordinary shootings and by suicide and even by medical errors in hospitals, right? So we should keep some proportion here. And finally, whatever is the case with these specific shooters, whether or not they're both people of the fourth type I describe in this essay, people who are motivated, in this case, by the lunatic ideology of white nationalism, and that may yet prove to be the case, it is obviously a bad thing that we have a president who utterly fails to be clearly and consistently opposed to these ideas. Yes, you can find him in the aftermath of Charlottesville saying one measly thing against white supremacy. But to say that he has been ambiguous on this issue is an understatement. Right? To say that he has given comfort to racists is an understatement. He completely lacks a decent ethical political response to these trends. I'm not a fan of dog whistle theory. I don't actually think he's dog whistling in his statements to white supremacists. I think he's just an ordinary Archie Bunker style racist who doesn't care about these issues and doesn't want to alienate anyone in his base. And I think the people who are endlessly talking about dog whistles are doing much more harm than good in our political discourse. Not everything is a dog whistle. In fact, almost nothing is a dog whistle. I'm not saying the phenomenon doesn't exist, but generally racists just tell you what they think. And when they talk to other racists, they're explicit about their racism. And it really does matter that the left's allegations against Trump and his supporters are so poorly targeted. You know, when he tells Ilan Omar to go back to where she came from. On the left, that is proof positive of racism. Again, I have no doubt that Donald Trump is actually a racist, but that's a bad example of racism. It can be read in other ways. And to think that it's a dog whistle to neo-Nazis is just an act of leftist clairvoyance that strikes me as totally counterproductive. To remind you how crazy this has all become, there was a Washington Post opinion editor who claimed that Nancy Pelosi was dog-whistling to racists when she criticized AOC and Ilhan Omar and the rest of the so-called squad. Nancy Pelosi? The dog-whistle meme is going to prove politically suicidal on the left. We have to be precise, even when attacking racists. So whatever turns out to be true in this case, whether either one of these mass shootings is a clear example of white nationalist terrorism, the problem with Trump is not that he is a clear supporter of white nationalist terrorism or even white nationalism. The problem is he is an obscenely amoral president who can't be counted upon to say anything beyond what he imagines is narrowly self-serving politically and financially. To use a great word which is now much overused, this is the U.S. presidency reduced 
to a grift. And it's awful, but it is not always precisely awful in the ways that are alleged on the left. And again, every error matters. We are guaranteed to have Trump for four more years if the Democrats can't get their house in order. So my political concern here is that this not get overplayed and overspun. It's totally possible that one of these shooters is mentally ill. And if this still gets talked about as white nationalist terrorism, rather than a symptom of mental illness, that is going to be a political problem. And no, this is not a double standard. There are acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims that are not examples of jihadism, much less jihadist terrorism. Sometimes people really are violent for other reasons, as I sought to make clear in this essay. However, it is yet another very dark moment, and this has all been horrible news, but uh, I will leave it there. And now for today's podcast. Okay, well, in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Judea Pearl. Judea is a professor of computer science at UCLA. He's the author of three highly influential scholarly books. Uh, he's also the winner of the Alan Turing Award, often considered the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for computer science. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's one of the first 10 inductees into the IEEE Intelligence Systems Hall of Fame. He's received numerous awards and honorary doctorates, including the Rummelhart Prize, the Benjamin Franklin Medal, and the Lakatos Award at the London School of Economics. And uh, he's also the founder and president of the Daniel Pearl Foundation. And that is because he's the father of Daniel Pearl, who was the, I believe, the first journalist killed by Al-Qaeda at least the first that came to the attention of everyone in the aftermath of September 11th. Anyway, I mentioned this at the beginning because it would have been awkward to have just ignored it, but as you'll hear, I didn't have the heart to, um, to make Judea's experience uh, there a topic of conversation. So I opened that door only to close it, and then we just go on to have a, a fairly highbrow conversation about how science has generally failed to understand causation. We talk about the different levels of causal inference, counterfactuals, the foundations of knowledge, the nature of possibility, the illusion of free will, artificial intelligence, the nature of consciousness, and other topics. Anyway, at one point, I get confused about what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a nerd fest. But I really enjoyed it, and as you'll hear, Judea is a dear person, and it was a great privilege to meet him. So now, without further delay, I bring you Judea Pearl. I am here with Judea Pearl. Judea, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we have, um, we've been circling this podcast for quite some time. It's just taken a while to uh, actually get together, and we have many areas of overlapping interest, so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about your work. I was prepared, as I said offline, to just talk about your academic work, and, and we'll, we'll get deep into that, but 
given my background as a critic of Islam and as a warrior about the link between specific religious ideas and and specific forms of violence, it's awkward for me to bring it up, but it's, it's awkward for me to ignore it as well. Danny Pearl was your son, who was, I believe, the first, at least first most visible person murdered, journalist murdered. journalist. Yeah, yeah. after uh, 2001. So I just, I wanted to kind of just mention that at the outset, we can talk about it or not, if, but as you we like. We talk about this topic separately, so we can separate the two discussions. Okay, okay. I don't feel the strange talking about it. I get used to talk about it. But I think for in terms of listeners' interest, some people have interest in the technical part and some have in the ideological part. Right, so right. It's good to separate the two. Okay, well, let's, let's dive into your work and, and then see what happens because your work is fascinating. So how would you describe what, you, what your intellectual focus has been in your career? Recently, it has been the mathematization of uh, cause and effect. Let's uh, put it very, very concisely and precisely. But there's a direct connection to artificial intelligence that oh, we'll yeah, talk about? Because if we want uh, robots to behave, behave like us, to communicate with us in our language, we have to equip them with the ability to communicate in terms of cause and effect. This is our language. If if they act stupidly without knowing the difference between correlation and causation, they will not be able to supply us answers to questions that we are, that are burning for us. Even simple questions like, why did the milk spill? Because I pushed it or because I was irritated or things of that sort. You want a good answer, a good explanation, so we can communicate. So you just mentioned this this opposition between, between correlation and causation. Yes, yes. It, and it this, been... this is a phrase that will be familiar to many people. I think many people will be surprised that it has impeded scientific understanding to the degree that it has. I mean, you, you make a very strong case that science has more or less ignored causation, and yet I think in the popular understanding, science is all about finding the causes of, of phenomenon. Correct. And so maybe we can speak for a few minutes about how statistics has rendered us unable to speak about causes historically. It's not statistics, it's science in general. Yeah. You see, we learn physics. Every high school kid can solve uh, physics homework. And uh, if you look at the physics homework, it's, uh, you have... Boundary condition, condition. you have the equation of motions and find out uh, what's going to happen or even what's going to happen if you intervene and you change the spring length to double its previous value. Hmm. It's a causal question, right. and every child can do that. Okay? But when you're trying to transfer this knowledge to a computer, to a robot, then you, a, a robot is facing a, a clash here. Uh, the equations of physics are symmetric, which means that x causes y to the same degree as y causes x, which means that the movement of the barometer depends on the pressure. In the same way that the pressure depends on the 
movement of the barometer. Right. So when the robot comes in and looks at the equation and says, hmm, let me change the weather tomorrow by moving this barometer a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would prevent the robot from doing that? Yes, it's the same thing that prevents the uh, high school kids from not giving the same answer. Right. Yeah, but what the high school kids had, the notion of cause-effect. So the high school kids filters the equations in his or her mind before giving you the answer. And mm. that is a kind of filtering that we need to do here to introduce the asymmetry between cause and effect and do it mathematically because the robot doesn't understand the uh, hand-waving. Yeah. Robots must understand equations. So we need an algebra which is asymmetric to capture the asymmetry in nature. Right, so it's asymmetric with respect to influence. influence. T- time is usually the signature of influence. Correct, well, but, but it's not, not only the time. Yeah. It's not only the time. Yeah. We can show many cases in which the temporal direction, temporal order is different, and still X causes Y, and Y doesn't cause X. Right. It's very simple. I mean, you don't, you don't actually need teleology for no, that. Yeah, you I'll give you an have, example. Yeah. The, uh, the rooster crow mm-hmm. precedes the sunrise, and, right. and no one will say that the Rooster crow causes the sunrise. It's highly correlated too. Yeah, and so the the, ro- the, the rooster <laughs> crow appears to be a cause if, if time were your only signature. If yeah. the time is the only thing, yeah. right? It's not sufficient. So you talk about three levels of causation, mm-hmm. and maybe back up for a second and do a little more history of ideas. So uh, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, has been very influential here in alleging that, at least in one place in his work, that we never, we have no direct knowledge of causes ever. All we have is the conjunction or the, or the correlation, the coincidence of two events. And when, you know, event B reliably follows event A, we impute causation where, in fact, there's no other knowledge ever gained there. And, you know, I've always felt that that's almost a kind of semantic game which ignores some background intuitions we have that reach deeper into the way the world is than just mere B following A. First, it's ignore experiments. Mm. And Galileo lived before Hume. Right. So I'm surprised that Hume did not pay attention to Galileo. Although Galileo didn't make it explicit that uh, with experiments we get additional knowledge that you could not get by passive observation. But Hume... um, puts too much emphasis on regularity, which was criticized by many other people. But then Hume changed his mind. Yeah. Uh, between his essay and the, and the treatise on human nature. Mm-hmm. And he, after I think seven or nine years, he, he said, in other words, and then he, he brought up a counterfactual definition of causation. Right. Had the object been different, the results would have... I, I don't have the exact phrasing. I have it in my book. Mm-hmm. That he changed from regularity to counterfactual. Had the object been different, then the, res, the outcome would be different. And even put the words in other words between them, as if they, are, they were the same. Right. But they are totally different. The first one is... A statistical regularity, which sits on the lowest level of the ladder, and the 
counterfactually the top layer, the third layer. Yeah, so let's talk about the three layers. You, ha- you describe them at one point as seeing, doing, and imagining. Right. So uh, seeing is this, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you describe it. What, what is seeing? Uh, seeing is you are sitting there like an astronomer, passively observing phenomena with your hand tied behind your back, and you are um, talking about how your belief changes with additional observation. That's statistics. If you see some, if you see another piece of evidence, you change your belief. Whether you see symptoms and you change your belief about disease, you see a disease and you have expectation about symptoms. Uh, so this is what uh, statistics is all about. Right, and and so that's the domain of mere correlation, the mere and, and correlation. Humean, humean juxtaposition. Correct. At least the first human is first Correct. mood. Yeah, and that, by the way, is the domain of machine learning today. Right, care fitting. Yeah. yeah. Under noise, of course. Right. So that has been the dominant maybe, theology. Maybe, I mean, we're, we're going to head toward AI for a second, but maybe we should, should elaborate on that just for a stretch of, of 30 seconds. Machine learning takes in an immense amount of data and finds correlations which prove useful as, as long as we give it information as to what constitutes success. So it's like take a, a facial recognition task. What's an you know, example? And there's just, there's that mere correlation combined with sufficient computational power can prove very useful. Very it's just, useful? It's just not, it's just... Amazingly useful. <laughs> yeah. It's just obviously not the basis of, of general intelligence of the sort that we are, we'll, we'll later talk about. Yeah. It is uh, debatable whether yeah. it is sufficient for right. general in- intelligence. Seems or unlikely, yeah. But my opinion is not, because yeah. I have seen mathematically that there are barriers that you cannot cross. Right. Okay, so we'll get to AI in a second and, and the robots that may or may not kill us. So seeing, then there's doing. What is doing? Uh, doing is running an experiment. Mm. Okay. I'm... I'm wondering whether cancer, uh, whether smoking causes cancer. So I conduct experiment. It's as old as uh, Daniel in the uh, lion den. Okay. In the book of Daniel, you have a first experiment where uh, Daniel and his fellows uh, Israelites who were exiled refused to eat the food. It wasn't kosher. Mm-hmm. And the king Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to eat the king's food because it was uh, much healthier and he depended on their talents to run the empire. <laughs> right. So Daniel p- proposed an experiment. Okay, take a few of us, give them vegetarian food and take the other groups and give them the king's food and see who is going to be <laughs> more uh, health- healthier looking. And that was the first experiment that we know of. Okay? Almost controlled, almost right. randomized. Yeah. yeah, I don't know which the control is there, but yeah. Well, take a group. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's say you, you split the group into two parts. One of them is control, the other one is right. treatment, they call them. And um, you see the difference in the outcome. Okay. It's an experiment, but of course, this was invented only in the 1930s. The idea of randomized experiments. A randomized controlled experiment in the yes, 1930s, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but we have been dealing with cause and effect much before that, right? Sure. Even from the time of one, Daniel. One hopes. How yeah. did we manage? 
Well, the child manages by conducting a playful manipulation in the world. The child uh, finds out that moving one ball causes the other one ball to move. Playing with one toy makes a noise, and the other one doesn't. So it's called playful manipulation. And that's, I believe, where we get most of our uh, knowledge about cause and effect in the world. Yeah, yeah, you push the world and something happens. With your own muscles. Yeah. Right. Like Galileo <laughs> dropped the two objects from the tower of Pisa and looked at them with his own eyes. Right. That was essential. So the third level is imagining. A third one is imagining, yeah. Some people do not see the... the you, no. you can sit back if you want. I can just swing this. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, imagining is looking at your theory of the world and manipulating it in your mind. I start talking about imagining by showing the first uh, sculpture that described um, impossible objects. It was a lion head connected to human body. Okay. That was the first figurine, ivory figurines discovered from 32,000 years ago in a cave in Germany. The first object, artifact, they describe an impossible object. And how was that created? Well, the artist, in his or her mind, probably was his, mm. um, <laughs> imagined taking apart the human body, sever it, and putting on a lion head. Imagining it in your mind first and then put it in the ivory. Okay? Right. And that was the key. Okay? You can manipulate things in your mind before doing it in the physical world. And that is a terrific idea because that creates, according to Harari, a market of promises. Hmm. Okay? Yeah, you, you, you've all know Harari. Yeah, we, we've, uh, he's been on the podcast. And, uh, yeah. Do you know him? He's, he's very interesting. He's a, uh, no, I haven't met him personally. Yeah. He communicated in one message. <laughs> uh -huh. you, you guys should get together. So imagining is the domain of counterfactuals, and, and counterfactuals are a very important part of this story. It's essential for science. How would you define a counterfactual? It's um, figuring out an outcome that would have prevailed had a certain observation not taken place. Had Hillary won the election, had Cleopatra nose been longer than it was really, okay? <laughs> had Julius Caesar not crossed Rubicon? Don't laugh, because that's how historians communicate. Right. Okay? <laughs> and they understand each other, and they form you know, a consensus. So they can communicate, had Oswald not killed Kennedy, how would uh, American politics develop? When would have we pulled out of Vietnam and things of that sort? And they can communicate that way, despite the fact that Oswald did kill, kill Kennedy. Right. How can we form a consensus about things that um, are conflicting with the real trajectory of history. So it's, it's a discussion of what might have been. Might have been. And it's, a, it's anything that falls into the bin of, had the world been different, what could we say then? Correct. Right? If I hadn't crossed the street at precisely that moment, 
how would my life be different? And, and with that comes all the ethics. You yeah. should have known better. Great, yeah. So that this is, this is, it's such a, it, it can sound like a very dry export from the ivory tower, this notion of counterfactuals, but it underpins so much of what we care about. And I, I think we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, so for, there's another connection for me to the foundation of knowledge. I mean, what, what does real knowledge consist in? It's not enough to be right by accident. Right, so you can't like if you know if I look at my watch, and it's it's actually broken, but it ha- happens to show the correct time at this moment. It's wrong to say that I am in in knowledge of what time it is. I, I you know because a minute later, I, you know, I will re- will reveal that my methodology is such that it's not delivering me actual knowledge about the world. So you need to be able to ask, and this is a, this is a problem I I always get into with religious people when I you know when I criticize religion. I criticize it for this. When you ask yourself, I would invite any any believer to ask this question of themselves now, would you believe in God if God didn't exist? <laughs> right? Do you stand in such relation to the truth of his existence such that you would not form a false belief that he exists? Is your belief in God the result of being in some contact with reality such that if God didn't exist, you wouldn't believe he exists. And I, th- I think, you know, any look at the, the history or, and psychology of religion demonstrates that in almost every case, apart from the, the mystics who have some vision of God that, you know, may in fact be a vision of God, you know, who, who are we to judge? Believers routinely violate this principle because the, the truth is they inherit these doctrines from previous generations that have merely asserted that certain books were dictated by the creator of the universe, and there's no, no more burden of evidence than that, and there's no more reality testing or updating of beliefs generation after generation. It's, there's still the mere assertion that these ancient books are the perfect record of God's existence. You are facing now a specimen of a person who uh, answers your description. I don't believe in God. Actually, I know that God doesn't exist. Okay, you and give I me one better. Believe, and yeah. I still believe in him. Okay, well, that, that's, that's going to get complicated. Hey, <laughs> why? Okay. okay, well, so, all right, so I'm, I'm reluctant to take a full detour here, but it's, it's, it's too interesting. So, okay, so what do you mean? What do you mean? God and religion are just poetry. Okay, well, that's... So I'm using uh, certain metaphors. Sure. Which are very helpful due to my cognition. I'm using them to communicate with you, with my children, and I say, "Yeah, God will punish you if you if you talk right. like that." <laughs> Why not? Uh, um, which means, uh, look, to be more scientific about it, the most of our reasoning works around metaphors, mm. similarities. And the deepest metaphors that we have are the metaphors of family relations. We are born to mother and father. We are, our perception system is so attuned to whether our mother frowns or smiles. Yeah. It's, it's the first thing that we, we, we learn. You grow up and you find out that um, the world is not only mother and fathers. It has stars and it has other things. So you create a metaphor, because I understand mother and father. Okay? I don't understand this movement of the stars. So I would 
immediately come out with a conclusion that there is some force there, like my father, that moves the stars around, and like my father, teaches me things and punishes me things. Uh, sometimes it's very natural. So that's the basics of our cognition. So I do not fight it. I use it. But I remember that it's only, only a poetry. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, then you have a, you have a, you're in a parish of, with very few members at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that's a, uh, a legitimate use of, of poetry and literature, certainly. <laughs> but it's not what most people most of the time mean by God, <laughs> as, as you know. This is just to say that thinking about what might have been different at uh, the level of belief. So I, I believe certain things about the world, and if I believe I'm in touch with the world, I believe that, for instance, I'm you know, staring at a microphone that I put here. I believe there's a microphone in front of me on the desk. Implicit in that belief, to say that that really is my propositional attitude, that there's a microphone on the desk, is the assertion that if there weren't a microphone on the desk, I wouldn't think there was one. Right. So there is a counterfactual built into just the assertion that this is a microphone, whether anyone ever thinks about it. But as you point out, an understanding of counterfactuals or, or an ability to model them is the necessary ingredient to understanding what, in fact, is a cause as opposed to a merely a, an event that happens to precede some other event in, in time or be associated with it, a mere correlation. It's necessary to um, believe in actual cause. By right. actual is different than, uh, uh, than average cause. See, smoking right. is, on the average, smoking is harmful to your health, on the average. But some people yeah. could, be, could benefit from smoking. Yeah, so when you talk about the individual, then you talk about counterfactual. Right. Had I not smoked, I, I would, would have lived cancer, yeah. X number of years. Well, let's talk about the smoking case, because that was a, a fascinating bit of history in your book, which I, I thought I was aware of, but it was actually a far bit more grim and delusional than I realized. I mean, the, 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 there was a period of such active and protracted debate about whether or not smoking caused cancer that it went on far too long. And you had people, you had scientists who were smoking two and three and four packs a day denying the linkage. And there's a nicotine-empowered level of confirmation bias that was ruling the conversation there. What lessons do you draw from that period in our history? To me, it means uh, something perhaps different than to other people. For me, it was an example of how scientists can argue about uh, things for which they don't have a language. They didn't have a language of causation at that time. They had a language of randomized experiment, which they couldn't conduct on smoking. Okay? Right. And that gave a Fisher, who was the top uh, uh, statistician at the time. An avid pipe smoker, if I recall. Uh, yeah, pipe smoker all his life. And it gave him ammunition to claim, hmm, maybe, maybe what we see here is just coincidental correlation between some genetic factor that makes you, you know, crave for nicotine on one hand, and it puts you in a cancer risk on the other. 
Okay, so what we are seeing is just the effect of a confounder, right? Brain, or a third variable that um, causes both. Okay, I'm not sure that he did it because he was a smoker himself, or because he was he, he wanted to be an ipramistabra, which means just a smart, a smart ass, smart ass, <laughs> <laughs> smart ass. Uh-huh. Okay, and to show off his knowledge about statistics and about the possibility that you might get the same results with a different hypothesis. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure what, which was the case, but he, he, the fact that he resisted the conclusion of other people who went on for more than 10 years, I think many, millions of people died as hmm. a result of that, but eventually, it was resolved by a commissioner, and they came out, the surgery general came out with a statement that it does cause cancer. And the way that came about it was uh, interesting. They uh, looked into uh, you know, the plausibility argument in order to calculate it, the degree to which uh, the hidden genetic factors will have to change your craving uh, for nicotine. And that made it impossible or implausible that if you have this genetic factor, you will grab eight times more than if you didn't have it. They don't have any mechanism between a genetic factor which will make this craving plausible. Mm. Say, okay? That was a key for the conclusion that they came up with in the consensus they came up with. And things have been different since that. Right. But still, what one confronts there is the sense that based on a purely statistical argument, it's always a, an overreach to establish causation no matter how much data you have of correlation. Correctly. And that has not been appreciated to the degree it should be. No causes in, no causes out. Mm. That was a Nancy Cartwright slogan. Which people <laughs> make sense. But no, no, it does. No, no causation without correlation, everybody understands, okay? But the idea is that if you want to get causal conclusion, you must have some causal assumption someplace or experiment. One of the two. Right. This is so important that <laughs> because so many people have forgotten. Let's linger on this notion of of counterfactuals for another moment because so it, it it does suggest that possibility is a real thing and i've occasionally wondered in fact the last time I, I wondered this in public i it was it was john brockman's final edge question and and the the one i suggested was i don't know if you were in that particular round but my last edge question the, the question that year was what should the last edge edge question be and I believe my question was, is the actual all that is possible? Which is to say, that is, is possibility an illusion? Is there only what is actual? Is the notion that something else could have happened always just an idea? And does it actually not reach into anything that uh, we can profitably think about? Is there simply just the fact of the matter in every case? And counterfactual thinking is is explicitly thinking about what what is possible, what what might have been, had things been different, and I guess I'll, I guess I'll just uh, put it to you: how how do we know that 
possibility is even a thing. It's useful to speak as though it were a thing. And this actually connects to the topic of free will, which you write about in the book, because yes. you, know, you and I are convinced, you know, happily, not many people agree with us, but you and I are both convinced that free will is an illusion, but in one way or another, it's a, a useful or inevitable illusion. But we still indulge. don't understand what makes it useful. Right, right. Okay. And, and, and we, you and I might disagree a little bit about how useful it is, but is it possible... Uh, here, there's the useful invocation of the concept. Is it possible that possibility is an If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.